0: hey everybody it is good to be back in worship with you and good to know that the praise team is still killing it so let's give them another round of applause i'm stealing one of these mic stands just as a heads up uh that's a problem for a future box drummer um but it is not my problem now <laughs> hello everyone and welcome to christian campus fellowship my name is Rowell salinas and i am so happy to see so many familiar faces here as well as all the new faces, because that means that staff is doing their job right. (laughs) If you're wondering why I've been wearing a mask tonight, it's because my wife has the flu. Um, No worries though, not the splash zone. I've been taking Tamiflu preemptively uh, and I haven't been showing any symptoms, so should be good there, but just out of an abundance of caution, and because I'm a good couple feet away from all 'all, y'all, I will be wearing a mask after this and probably keeping just a little bit of a distance. Uh, So, again, if we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Rowell. I used to be on staff here as the Minister of Pastoral Care and Reconciliation for about four years, uh, not counting my gap year of grad school. That was in there. Um, It's kind of a joke. Anyway, um, (laughs) I transitioned um, out of CCF uh, about a year and a half ago, so not this past May, but the May before, and a lot has happened in my life between now and then. I graduated from Emory and from UGA. Yeah, woo! Yeah, grad school's awful, so I'm really happy I finished it. Um, I got my master's in divinity, which is just a seminary degree that you pay a lot of money for, and I got my master in social work uh, from UGA. I got engaged and then immediately married to my best friend, which was super exciting. Um, and then I got my first job uh, out of. Uh, out of CCF and then got fired from that first job out of CCF, but I am now working at a church in Roswell, and I am loving it, and it's a lot, yeah, please, applause, applause. I had scratched that originally from the, the script and then decided to include it now, and I think that was a bad idea, um, but yes, yeah, so I work at a church in Roswell now um, as the ministry coordinator, so I'm going to share a little bit more about myself in just a moment, um, but before I do that, let's pray. Everyone, do what you do. Hey God, we ask that you please fill this room with your spirit. We ask that you be with us tonight as we wrestle with the text to find what is the good news that you have for us. Open up our hearts and open up our ears to hear what it is that you have to say to each of us. We thank you that we're in a place where we're able to gather safely in your name, and we thank you for the great and powerful ways that you've been moving in this ministry. We ask all these things of you in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so, just a little bit about me. I was a freshman here at UGA 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah, thank you. It certainly makes me feel old. Um, I first found CCF the same way as many of you do through the Freshman Activities Fair during orientation. Um, Though I think it has a new name now, right? It's fourth quarter? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, not to sound like an old man, but back in my day, we didn't have a mechanical bulldog to ride, and it looks like the science fair. There's nothing but these old, boring trifolds and a bunch of really tired people trying to convince you to come try out their clubs. Um, so needless to say, it was super exciting. Uh, I remember going by this one stand, and there was this old man with glasses, and he was all like, Hi, my name's Donnie Holiday, and this is CCF. <laughs> we have weird people in Mario Kart. You should come check us out sometime. And you know what? I didn't. I did not go to CCF. Uh, At the time, it was a little bit of like campus ministry, organizational club overload. So I did what any rational, sensible college freshman would do and did absolutely nothing my first semester, which ended up being a huge mistake. uh, Because by the end of fall semester, my roommate and I were driving each other up the wall. Could not stand them by the end of that semester, so come spring, I was looking for lots of excuses to get out of the dorm room. I started attending every club possible. I did UGA Miracle for a little bit. I did this group called Nourish, which I think was like actively dying as I was joining it, so it um, didn't last super long. Um, But despite all these new clubs I was trying, a campus ministry was still not on my radar. Instead, it was because I was at a different uh, organization that UJ has that I was approached by a dorky girl with glasses, and she was all like, hey, my name is Kristen Fowler. I like your cross. Do you have a campus ministry that you're plugged into? So that's right, everybody. I knew Kristen back when she was just a junior. I was there for cool, undercut, Kristen. I was there, yeah. I was there for getting pied in the face, Kristen. And I was also even there for breakdancing to Gold Digger, Kristen, which I convinced her to do for an open mic night. So since y'all have that going on tomorrow, I'm sure you can convince her to do it again. Ours is one of the longest friendships I've ever had. I like to call her my oldest friend because she's old. Um, Though that joke probably stings me now a little bit more than it used to because I am also old. Um, But I am so thankful for just the series of events that have led to us meeting and all the good that God has done with that. Uh, She invited me to CCF, and clearly, I've had a relationship with this ministry ever since. I met my smoking hot wife here, uh, as youth pastors say. uh, Not my smoking hot wife. This is my really cool friend. And then this is my smoking hot wife. There we go. Yes. Uh, Her name is Maddie Court Salinas. Ooh, get to say that now. Right? A lot of hard work. Um, And this past Sunday, we celebrated one year of marriage together. Thank you. So we started dating her freshman year of college. Um, It's a shame that she can't be here tonight. She was really looking forward to seeing all of you, and she actually used to be the worship leader here a couple years ago. She's an all-around fantastic human being, and unless she's NyQuilled out right now, she should be watching via the live stream, so hi, baby. Whichever camera I'm supposed to look at, hi, baby. So yes, you've heard it here, folks, that maybe, just maybe, you too can meet the love of your life at CCF. There we go. That's the tagline. However, however, if that is not what God has in store for you, I have great news. I have also made a bunch of friends that have lasted through thick and thin, and I've been to their weddings, to non-CCF people. So it still happens. Love is out there, I promise. CCF has truly been so much for me. It was where I first discerned my call for ministry work. It's where I met so many of the fantastic people that have been and continue to be in my life. And most importantly it's where i first took uh, the steps to grow intentionally in my relationship with god so i hope you see that with all the alumni in the room that there are a lot of us who have also grown up within these walls and that we all feel the same way we're all so happy to just be back in this house tonight and to be worshiping with you i think it's also important to mention on alumni night that there are many more alumni who because of what they do for a living or because of where life has literally taken them Um, They can't be here, but they support the ministry uh, financially because they believe so much in the good work that happens here. So everything that this ministry is, you have inherited from a bunch of awesome people who have also thought that this was worth spending their time. So that was a little bit about me, and we are going to dive into the theme for the year. So just like we used to do back in my day, they still do it. CCF has a theme that they use each year to guide their talks for the year. The theme for this year is the kingdom of heaven. So far, you all have been journeying through the gospel of Matthew. So gospel is just a word that means good news, and the gospel of Matthew is one of the four books in the Bible about Jesus' time on earth. You all have been going through some of the parables, which is just a word that means simple stories that reveal a higher truth, as well as meeting some of the people and hearing some of the teachings of Jesus found in Matthew. So through parables, through people, and through preaching, all of these things are used to show that the kingdom of heaven is not just some far off idea, but is instead a very present reality. So keeping in step with this theme, we're going to be looking at one of the people that pop up in Matthew's gospel. But before I continue, I have some questions for you all. Yeah. Ooh. OK. So first, raise your hand if there are things in the Bible that you do not like. OK. See a couple of hands. Hands down, hands down, hands down. Second raise your hand if there are things in the Bible that make you uncomfortable. Okay, a couple more hands, a couple more hands, hands down. Third, raise your hand if there are things in the Bible that you wish were not in there. Yeah, yeah, even more hands. Okay, good. All right, so I'm going to be real with y'all. If you didn't raise your hand to any of those questions, either in person or at home, I'm not super convinced that you read your Bible. (laughs) Because the Bible is full of things that should make you feel uncomfortable. It is also full of things that are really hard to accept. It's full of things that are just downright confusing. And you know what? You can still raise your hand to any of those questions and still be a good Christian. Both of those things can be true. Maybe the reason why you raise your hand for not liking the Bible was because it calls you out on some things that you know you shouldn't be doing. I didn't mean to look intentionally at anybody in this corner, but if you felt targeted, maybe that's God, not me. I mean, it's full of passages like this. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. (laughs) I am warning you, as I have warned you before, those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ooh, you know, typical Saturday in Athens, right? Hashtag just girly things. Um, No. Um. (laughs) I'm sure something in this long list of thou shalt nots probably stepped on your toes because, I mean, some of it stepped on my toes. Uh, there are plenty of lists like this in the Bible, not because God is trying to stop us from having a good time or trying to judge us for judgment's sake, but instead it's to show that God is trying to protect us from things that are often going to be what we do to hurt ourselves or to hurt others. Um, so while that is a good reason to have those lists in there, It still doesn't always feel nice when you come across them, because who likes to be called out? So sometimes that's why we don't like what's in the Bible. Or maybe you raise your hand because you take issue with the violence that appears in the Bible. Often God-ordained and often targeted to people that, if not all, at least some should be innocent. Stories about the killing of the firstborns in Egypt, the displacement of the Canaanites throughout Joshua and Judges, and the complete destruction of all the men, women, and children, and animals of the earth through the flood are just some of the stories that come to mind. And that's not even mentioning the extreme acts of sexual violence that occur against women in the Bible. That is a very valid reason to raise your hand and say there are things in the Bible that you do not like. Or maybe you raise your hand because you don't like the passages in the Bible that have been used to either subjugate or exclude entire people groups from the people of God. So women, members of the LGBT community, indigenous persons and black people in every time, culture and country have all been and often still are the ones to bear the brunt of discrimination made divine through the misuse and abuse of scripture. The Bible is full of things that you should not like. It is also full of things that should make you uncomfortable And it's true that there are good things in the Bible that have been used poorly to cause pain and hurt. So for all those reasons and more, there are things that we often wish were not in the Bible. And this can lead to us having a very complicated relationship with Scripture. And so the question is, what are we to do with those texts? Are we to just throw them on the utility drawer in the kitchen and hope that we never have to see them again? No. Unfortunately, we can't just ignore the parts of the Bible that we don't like. That doesn't solve the problem of the text, that um, doesn't solve the problems that these texts create. And at its worst, difficult texts like these, when left unattended, when ignored, can often become the source of a rift between us and God. Uh, We can't just bury the bad and hope for the best. That doesn't work in any area of your life. You have to confront the hard things. So what do we do with these hard texts? Feminist theologian Phyllis Tribble calls passages like these texts of terror. In her book, by the same name, which is actually out there on the CCF resource shelf, she advocates that when we do the hard work of confronting difficult texts, we actually walk away with a better understanding of God. In fact, when we wrestle with these texts of terror, many of the ones that have been troubling or oppressive or discouraging, when you wrestle with them, they actually kind of become enlightening and liberating and even empowering, even if that means that we have to wrestle with those texts for a long time. And wrestling isn't a bad thing, because to wrestle with God is to still be in God's hands. Yeah, right? I bring all this up because tonight's text is a disturbing one. It's one that I do not like. It's one that I wish wasn't in the Bible. It's one that I would call a text of terror. However, you cannot do a sermon series on people in the Gospel of Matthew and leave her out. The person we will be discussing tonight is the Canaanite woman. Now, I know there are some of you here who might not know exactly who or what a Canaanite is. So Canaan is the name of the land that would eventually become inhabited by the kingdoms of Israel and Judah in the Old Testament. It was promised to a man named Abraham and his descendants in the book of Genesis, which is the first book in the Bible, and it's what gets referred to as the promised land, or the land of milk and honey in the time of Moses, who was like the Hebrew prophet. <laughs> There's just one problem with the land of Canaan. When the Israelites left Egypt for Canaan, They found that it was actually already inhabited by, any guesses? The Canaanites. Yeah, right? The next few books of the Bible, from Joshua up to the time of their exile, depict stories of constant warring and fighting between the Israelites and the Canaanites. So centuries later, a Canaanite woman appears in the story of Jesus' life. And her presence represents not just someone who is, say, an outsider, but someone who has been a historical enemy. Now, before we go any further um, into this text, we need to kind of stop and add a disclaimer. A good preacher always preaches with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. And while I can't promise good preaching tonight, it would be a failure on my part not to acknowledge the reality of what is happening in our world right now. Given the nature of this text and the necessity of the land and understanding the animosity within it, it is important that we name the bloodshed that is currently happening between Israel and in Gaza. There are those who interpret the stories of Ishmael and Isaac, of the Israelites and the Canaanites, and or of God's promise to Abraham in such a way that it either justifies or promotes violence against innocent people. That kind of interpretation is counter to the overarching narrative of the Bible, and it's counter to the nature of God. Instead, The prophetic vision found throughout scripture is one of peace, one where all people, regardless of their national identity, come together and worship in the house of the Lord. So I want to thank the prayer team and thank staff for the vigil that they hosted tonight because it was a beautiful opportunity for us to be able to come together and mourn with those who mourn, to grieve with those who grieve, and to express righteous anger and sorrow at the escalating violence that is happening in our world right now. Bad theology and bad interpretations of scripture can quite literally kill. So we have to be very careful with how we approach these texts. Tonight's story about the Canaanite woman speaks to how we are supposed to treat one another in times such as these, with love and compassion despite past and sometimes long histories of prejudice and hate. And so with that in mind, we dive into the story. It's found in Matthew 15, and it goes like this. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed from that moment. This is a difficult text indeed. Jesus's callous treatment of a poor foreign woman is what makes this a text of terror. Because how can the incarnate Son of God, the one who's supposed to be the physical manifestation of God's love in the world, the same Jesus that we profess having died for all people in the world, call such a lowly woman in such great need a dog? When we met for my church's Bible study that dives deeper into the sermon text, One of the members of the church said that when she read this, she just kept thinking, not my Jesus, not my Jesus, not my Jesus. However, this is in fact our Jesus and we have to wrestle with why he behaved that way. There are many ways that people have tried to explain this text. Some try to soften it by pointing out that the Greek word Jesus uses for dog is actually the diminutive form. It's kind of like how in Spanish you would add ito to the end of the word to make it small and cute. So really, Jesus isn't calling her a mangy mongrel, but is instead calling her a puppy. So it's like, not that bad. And this would be a really great interpretation if it didn't fail to ignore the original audience, which were early Jewish Christians who, as we discussed, had a lot of beef with the Canaanites. They themselves would have called her a dog if given the chance and they believe that what jesus did was right to do and he was right to say it so for me this interpretation falls flat others say that this text is best um, interpreted as a test of faith jesus called her a dog to see if she would back down and by instead persisting and not giving up her daughter is healed because she demonstrated great faith jesus wasn't being a bully He was testing her to see if she was worthy of grace. Again, this interpretation fails because it presents an abusive relationship with a God that either causes suffering or slanders us before we are able to receive God's blessing. The story, again, is contrary to the, the narrative of the Bible that shows that God is actually sitting with us in the midst of our suffering and pain, not causing it. So again... I find this interpretation to be lacking. Some even try to lean into the human side of Jesus, since we as Christians preach that Jesus is both fully human and fully divine. So they say in this story, Jesus, being fully human, was tired and maybe a little bit cranky. Or some even say, they will take it a step further, and say that because Jesus was fully human, he was also a product of his own upbringing and that Jesus had to work through societal and structural racism. So with this interpretation at best, we have a Jesus lashing out and behaving poorly because he's exhausted. And at worst, we have a Jesus who is being racist and has to be educated on how to treat people well. And this, of course, brings up issues of what it means to be sinless and what it means to be perfect. And it mars the character of God. Because at no point in the Bible does it ever indicate that the created have to tell the creator that creation is good. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Uh, At the beginning, God made everything and said all of it was good. So again, this interpretation fails. By trying to solve the problems that are found in this text, each of these interpretations create more problems. They open other cans of worms. All of these are attempts to try and explain away something that is deeply disturbing. But I don't think we have to shy away from how disturbing this text is. I don't think we have to make it behave or try to make it more palatable because the text is disturbing and it should disturb us. And I think there's a purpose to that. Sam Cargill did a great job two weeks ago in his talk on sharing how the Bible is a series of stories. They have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and they are filled with characters that develop and grow, and they have an original audience that they were written and intended for. When we approach texts of terror like these, it is best that we try to place them back in their original context, because I know Donnie's your lead pastor, I'm sure you hear context is key all the time. So in a kind of meta way, I want to show some of the work that has to be done when we approach difficult texts like these. And we're going to look at its placement in its uh, original story, its characters, and its audience to try to see what we're supposed to do with this. So first, we're going to look at the placement in the narrative. Just prior to entering the region of Tyre and Sidon, Jesus was first in his home country and was healing people, casting out demons, you know, just little Jesus things. And then the Pharisees and scribes come all the way down from Jerusalem not to address the miracles that are happening in their own backyard, but to nitpick Jesus over something that, in comparison, feels quite trivial. Their gripe is, you and your disciples are not ceremoniously washing your hands before you eat. Thus, you are making yourselves ceremoniously, which is a hard word to say, unclean, that is, unfit to worship God. Healing people by the dozens? yet unfit to worship God. Talk about missing the forest for the trees. So, after tearing the Pharisees a new one in front of God and their mama, he then turns to the crowd and explains to them that it is not what goes into a person that makes them unclean, but it's instead what comes out. The disciples, who are also present, of course, missed the point, as Sam Cargill said two weeks ago. So Jesus breaks it down for them Barney style. He puts it like this. Are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth enters the stomach and goes into the sewer? That's just biology. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this is what defiles. For out of the heart come evil intentions, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are the things that defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile. A message that didn't really sell in COVID. So, as Jesus is saying, it's not the bad stuff, or we can just shorten to say the BS that goes into you that is going to make you unfit for worship, but it's instead the BS that is going to come out of you that makes you unfit for worship. BS, bad stuff, that is, that is, that is what we're sticking with. Yeah, 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 yeah. S- stay with it. So, after this lesson, they leave the Pharisees and go out into the Gentile countryside which just means a region where non-Jewish people live, and are immediately approached by what? Someone from the outside, an outsider to the Jewish faith. Someone that good Jewish boys are supposed to have nothing to do with, and that is the Canaanite woman. So at this point, we have to look at our characters. We already touched briefly on what a Canaanite is and some of the reasons why um, this matters to the story. And it matters specifically that this woman is a Canaanite and not, say, like a Roman or a Greek like some of the other outsiders we have met, because this story is written to Jewish Christians who have beef with the Canaanites. They, they hated them. It was on site. Um, whatever you kids say these days, maybe I'm getting too old. Um, anyway, when the original audience heard this story and hear the word Canaanite, all those years of fighting and beef are going to come right up to the surface. So like I said at the top, This woman isn't just an outsider, she is an enemy. So, continuing with the story, Jesus comes into her neighborhood, and upon his arrival, this woman frantically finds him and demands healing for her daughter. The text doesn't tell us if she has a husband or a community or anything, but for a Gentile woman to be approaching a Jewish rabbi, particularly one that has as huge of a reputation as Jesus does at this time, leads me to believe that she didn't have that many people in her corner advocating for her. The situation is so dire, and this woman believes so much in Jesus' healing power that she opts to put herself into a position of extreme humility to come and beg Jesus for healing. She calls him both Son, or this is Lord and Son of David, which are messianic titles. She has this understanding of who Jesus is. And where are the disciples in the midst of all the story? begging Jesus to send her away. So, two Thursdays ago, we were talking about the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew, and the, in Matthew 14, and the feeding of the 4,000 at the very end of this chapter. Sam pointed out that the disciples undergo this transformation within themselves, moving from people who do not understand to people who do understand. Finally, getting what Jesus means by chapter 16. These stories bookend this one that we're talking about tonight. We are in the middle of the disciples' character development, and that is why I find this phrase, send her away, to be so significant. Because back when they were in the desert, spending a crazy day healing people by the thousands, performing, exercising, performing exercises, like exorcisms, not exercising, um, <laughs> and teaching, the crowd starts to get hungry. And seeing this, the disciples approach Jesus and say, What? send them away. Um, But of course, Jesus doesn't. Instead, he says, you give them something to eat. Don't send them away. You do something, Maya. So here we are, one whole singular chapter later, and they clearly didn't get what they're supposed to do then, and it doesn't seem like they're about to get what they're supposed to do now, because this Canaanite woman comes begging for help, and I think that Jesus is choosing to be silent in this moment, because he's waiting to see if the disciples are gonna do something about it. Because we actually know earlier in Matthew that Jesus gave the disciples the power to perform exorcisms and to heal people. They're actually just as capable of Jesus in this moment of giving this woman what she needs. So I think he chooses to wait to see what are they gonna do. And rather than act in compassion, they beg Jesus to send her away. They don't seem moved by the fact that this outsider, the perceived enemy, this foreign woman, is calling out to Jesus not only with such human desperation, but also with such a clear understanding of who He is and what He can do. You see, the, the early Jewish people had this idea that the Messiah was for them, and that's true. However, they believe that the Messiah was only for them, that He was going to liberate them um, from oppressive rule and restore their kingdom. And so we see the disciples are still actively struggling with this expectation that they have for Jesus, and he's kind of behaving in ways that they either, A, don't like, or B, just don't expect, Um, despite Jesus' many interactions with people who aren't Jewish. So, you know, I think it's in this moment that out of deep frustration with the disciples, not this woman, that Jesus decides to show the disciples what happens when he tries to do things their way. You don't want to heal her? fine. You want me to tell her to go away? Fine. Let's see what happens. He says out loud what the disciples are thinking secretly in their hearts. Go away, dog. We have nothing for you. Get lost. Beat it. Go away, dog. How incredibly dehumanizing and how deeply disturbing. What happens to this woman and her daughter when Jesus says this? Nothing. Nothing happens. Their problem doesn't go away. Their need is still explicitly there. The disciples may have closed their hearts off to this woman and turned their face away from her, but she's still just outside demanding to be brought in and cared for. The disciples proved to be just as concerned as the Pharisees about what they thought was the outside evil coming in, that they missed that inside evil coming out. So Jesus ultimately heals this woman, as I think we all expected that he would, given his history of healing those who are even outsiders to the Jewish people. Jesus restores this woman's daughter and commends her for her faith because she gets that God's love is for everyone, not just for the lost sheep of Israel, but even for the lowly dogs in the Gentile countryside. It is this outsider who understood the message of the gospel so clearly, not the insiders. And it's at this point we have to return to the original intended audience for the story. Because the reason why it matters so much that we acknowledge that Matthew's gospel is written to early Jewish Christian communities is that doing so reminds us that it was written to the insiders of the insiders, They're not just insiders because they were the first Christians and the one who saw Jesus, like, actively on the earth. But they also come from the original people of God, the Jewish people. They were the ones who grew up hearing stories found in the Hebrew scriptures that talk about God's love for the foreigner and the oppressed. They're the ones who grew up reading about the prophets and their visions of God's temple being a house for all nations. So if anyone is supposed to know better on how to treat the outsider, it's these people. And that's what makes this text so relevant to us today. Because for those of us in the big blue house who profess ourselves as Christians, we are now the insiders. We're the ones who have access to these stories. Many of us are the ones who grew up hearing these stories, and we're supposed to be the ones that know the truth about God's love for the world. And nobody in the Bible was supposed to be more in this perceived in-group than the disciples the people who spent their entire time with Jesus for his three years of ministry. That is what makes their failure in understanding Jesus' teachings so tragic. And it's the danger that we face today as followers of Jesus. Rather than spread the message that all are loved by God, the disciples tried to keep people away from Jesus. They tried to keep those people on the outside so that they could keep Jesus for themselves on the inside. The purpose of this text of terror is not to hold up a mirror to Jesus and reveal something secretly sinister about God's character. It's instead for Jesus to hold up a mirror and reveal something about our own character. Something that we might harbor inside. It's supposed to be jarring and unsettling and discomforting to hear the words of such hate come from the mouths of our loving savior. And I think it's supposed to make us so uncomfortable because so often we harbor those same feelings of hate and prejudice and indifference within our own heart. The only like modern thing I can think of comparing it to is that scene in Monsters, Inc, where Sully is called to give a scare demonstration for all the up and coming monsters. Now, scaring kids was something that he was incredibly good at. It was even something he believed was not just okay but needed for the monster community. He went to school for it, trained for it, and actually became the best scarer on the floor. It was his livelihood and what he believed was the best thing that one could do. And additionally, like all of the monsters in Monstropolis, he grew up believing that these human children on the outside could contaminate you, so you kinda had to keep them at an arm's length, which means you had to dehumanize them a little bit. However, all of this changes, as I'm sure you know, when he befriends a little girl named Boo whose terror is captured on camera and only then does he realize the pain and the fear that he is creating. It's not until he sees it on the face of someone innocent that he begins to ask himself, maybe, just maybe, there's a better way. So I think likewise, it is not until we hear such callousness and indifference and hate from the mouth of Jesus, that we then begin to understand just how terrible we can sometimes be to each other. Because that is what Jesus meant when he said that it's what comes out of the heart that defiles us. Our own indifference, our own callousness, our own hate. What defiles us is not the person in front of us, but our treatment of them coming out of us. And yet, how many times do we stick our own heads in the sand and ask Jesus to send people away? Jesus, please send that poor person on the corner away. I can't stand to look at them. Please send the oppressed away, the hungry, the afflicted, the war-ravaged. Jesus, please remove them from my feed, remove them from my sight, send them away. This kind of behavior ignores the final command that Jesus gave his disciples at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew. Which is to go out into the world to be those on the inside going out and bringing people back to spread the good news of jesus and to show them that they are loved so what we see in this text is that the disciples the true insiders miss an opportunity to participate in true worship to do something god honoring to be a part of something greater than themselves and we as the new insiders run the risk of missing that same opportunity to be a part of something greater. Because this text also tells us the truth, that God is going to act on behalf of those in need whether we decide to participate in that goodness or not. God is always for the outsider and is calling us out to join in that work of caring for them. And so the true terror of this text is not what it says about Jesus, but what it says about us. And it leaves us with the question, what are you going to do? Are we going to tell Jesus to send those in need away, or are we going to do something about it? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the record of your revelation of your people throughout history. We thank you for scripture and the ways in which it comforts us when we feel afflicted and the ways in which it afflicts us when we feel comfortable. I ask that you please light a fire in us to keep taking steps closer to you and to see people in the same way that you see them. Give us the strength to wrestle with your word when things are difficult and give us the assurance to trust that what you have planned for us is good. Help us to be your hands and feet in this world and help us to love the people of this earth and it's in your son's name that we pray, amen.